maybe I'll just tell you about a pitch that I think was not a good pitch. Um, that was a really weird pitch, and maybe that's something I would hate someone to do again. Um, so uh, early on in Frontline, um, I used to have an apartment in London, and oh, I still have an apartment in London, but at the time, I had two spare bedrooms in the apartment, and I used to Airbnb them out. And um, I didn't put on my Airbnb anything about me being an investor or anything like that. I just put like, hi, I'm William, I'm in London, come stay in my house. And uh, somebody you know, booked the room for like uh, for four or five days, and um, and this guy arrives, and you know, fine, I say hi, I show him around the apartment. I think it's strange, because he's booked it for like four, day, four or five days, and he's just got like a small rucksack on his back. And then he basically um, I go back into the sitting room and I'm just like typing away something on my laptop and he comes in and he's like, hey William, I know this is going to sound a bit weird but I actually live in London and like I'm immediately thinking like, is this guy going to murder me? Um, and uh, and then he, he says, you know, I, 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 I was looking for a room for my friend who was visiting London and then I saw your name and I recognized that you were a VC and I thought, why don't I just spend the next like four or five days living with you and telling you all about my company? Um... And to be clear, just in case anyone's wondering, I won't tell you the name of his company, but his company was a men's underwear brand, which I know it shouldn't, but it kind of does make it feel a little bit weirder. Um, and so anyway, I uh, told him that that's not, not the way I would like to be pitched to and gave him a refund and, uh, and met him for a coffee and it was not an investment for us. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I'm Irina Jambazova, and on this week's episode, we take you back to the SaaS Talk 18 stage for a special Ask Me Anything session with Willem McQuillan, partner at Frontline. Without any preselected questions, Willem answers everything on the spot at the traction stage. After leaving university, Willem was one of the founding employees of Ondra Partners, a startup investment banking boutique. William's work at Ondra led him to discover his passion for rethinking an industry, and he shortly thereafter co-founded Osmoda, a fashion e-commerce company creating a new way for young and up-and-coming designers to sell online. During the same time, William was also the global ambassador for the Sandbox Network, a community of over 1,000 innovators under the age of 30. It was through his work at all of those places that William experienced firsthand the difficulty that European founders have when fundraising. This inspired him to join the other two partners, Will Prendergast and Shea Garvey, to set up Frontline, a fund that would usher in a new generation of early-stage venture capital in Europe. Frontline is based in London and in Dublin, but backs companies throughout Europe. The portfolio includes companies such as Boxever, Rumex and Acumetrix, among others. In the AMA, Will answers a host of questions such as Does he invest in failed entrepreneurs? What's his advice for unsexy companies with a slow start? What is the first company Frontline invested in and where are they now as a result of that investment? And many others. Having hundreds of investors around such as Willem is one of the best features of Sastok. With targeted matchmaking, a dedicated investor zone, many similar interesting content sessions, and plenty of serendipitous opportunities, you'll be sure to have many chances to speak with potential future funders. We just ran a list of 20 investors that will be joining us already, so be sure to check it out on the Sastop blog and start prepping. We'll link to the post in the show notes. Now, on with the show. 
Thanks very much, guys. So basically, as, as Ben just said, my name is William McQuillan. I'm one of the founding partners of Frontline Ventures. We're an early stage venture capital fund based in Dublin and London. And really, uh, when we were talking to SaaS stock, they kind of pitched this idea of, why don't we do a session about Ask Me Anything? You know, you, uh, everyone in the audience has been listening to kind of VCs for the last few hours talk. And why don't we give a, se a session at the end to basically allow people to ask the VCs a question rather than maybe the VCs talking at them. So in concept, that sounded great because I thought, oh, great, I, I don't need to prepare any slides. <laughs> but then, then it did start to dawn on me today, well, maybe people don't want to ask VCs any questions. But uh, there's going to be two ways to ask questions. There's Slido up here, which basically you go to slido.com, put in hashtag sastalk18, and, um, and then you'll see the fuel stage. You just select that and ask any questions. It's for any, maybe the introverted side. For anyone who just wants to throw up their hand and ask a question, we're going to have a roaming mic as well, so feel free to ask that. And maybe just uh, before people start asking questions, hopefully, uh, I'll give you a tiny bit uh, about uh, myself and Frontline to at least at least get your minds thinking on what questions might, might, might be good to listen to. So um, a little bit about myself. I originally um, uh, left college and joined Lehman Brothers. That went bankrupt incredibly quickly. Um, and, and I was very lucky. My boss was a guy called Michael Torrey. He was the head of UK Investment Banking, and he decided to, uh, to start his own company. I joined that company as the first employee. That grew from three to have 120 people. And that really got my taste on startups and getting involved in startups going. And so I went from that, had my own company after that, um, um, which unfortunately didn't work out and, and failed. Um, and after that, decided to go into venture since probably as the entrepreneur, I wasn't as successful. Um, and then we started Frontline six years ago. Since then, we've raised two funds, over 110 million, and we have 40 investments across Europe. We started Frontline really for three reasons. One was to go early and to kind of put that in perspective for anyone in the audience, 50% of our investments are pre-product, 75% of our investments are pre-revenue. So when we say early, we mean it. And then secondly, because we wanted to actually be able to give people a proper access to US capital. And so we spent a lot of time um, in, in the US and connecting our founders to the US capital. And we've actually co-invested more with US funds uh, than European funds. And, and then the final part uh, of what we set up was really around platforms. We wanted to add value in a scalable way. And we were the first VC to create platform and community in our model in Europe. So that's probably enough of uh, me talking about myself. I think we actually have questions. That's a good start. Before I jump onto Slido, is there any questions on the floor? There's one back there. Great. Thanks for not leaving me hanging here, guys. Is that working? Um, Good afternoon. Um, in terms of, you said you mentioned in like American companies and both European companies as well. What are the major differences between both American founders and European founders, if you found any? Yeah, there, there definitely is always cultural differences that you see. What we find is, and this is, I think, talked about quite a lot, is that you often see when an, an American entrepreneur will come in and pitch, they're just so but both confident and also, I would say, aggressive in what their uh, kind of their their plans for scaling are. You also get a lot of Irish entrepreneurs who are very self-deprecating. You'll see someone come in and say that they're, you know, this their, this their second or third time being a founder, and they will literally start self-deprecating, saying, "Oh, it was only a small company. We only got a 20 million exit. It's not really much to write home about." And you know, it's actually incredible how often Irish entrepreneurs are very self-deprecating. And then a lot of the con a lot of entrepreneurs in continental Europe, they focus very much on being realistic, and that can often, as an investor, throw you off because you're what you're looking for is to see someone who's hugely ambitious. And again, it tends to, it doesn't mean they're not ambitious. It just tends to be more of a cultural thing. And there is that small difference, I would say. Otherwise, still great entrepreneurs on, from everywhere. You never really know. 
Perfect. Um, okay, let's let's see what have we got here. Uh, how do you diversify your funds? Uh, okay, thank you whoever asked that. Uh, I don't know if anyone's looked at our website. We have five white Irish male partners, two of which we are called Will, two of which we are called Stephen. So we don't even have name diversity in our fund, um, which obviously is unfortunately also very representative of the industry. Um, and so it's something that we've thought a lot about of how that can affect. And uh, I think. Um, uh, a few years ago, we, we were very conscious of that when we were recruiting, and, and what we realized was we started saying, we, we want to track. And so what we do is, at the, for the last two years, we've tracked uh, across all companies that we see uh, what's the gender, and, and the last year, what's the ethnicity of people applying. And I think that that allows us to start seeing, you know, I, actually, to take a step back, I think a lot of people or investors use the excuse that we don't see enough in our pipeline. Um, as the reason that they don't invest in female or, or for other uh, minority uh, uh, people. But in reality, most people don't even know what is in their pipeline. They can't actually do any data on it or collect it. And so I think we've been, we've been collecting data on that for, for over two years now. And, and initially, when we first started collecting data on female entrepreneur companies, we were at about, I think, about 8 to 9%. Um, and so we've actively tried to think about how do we encourage female entrepreneurs to approach Frontline? And that's, we thought about that around branding, around our, our offices, around the events we go to. And over the last two, two, uh, two, three years, excuse me, two and a half, three years, that's increased now to, I think the last three or four months, we had almost 25% of our deal flow was, was women. So I think a lot of people focus on how do you, you know, we don't have enough in our pipeline. I think actually what we felt we've proven is that if you actively uh, try initiatives, you can, uh, you can increase that. That said, 25% is still nowhere near good enough, so a long, long way to improve. Uh, don't know if that answers that question, but uh, 2K MRR this time last year. Oh, sorry. 5K MRR today, clear pathway to 10K MRR this time next year. What's your advice to an unsexy Irish SaaS startup with such numbers? Uh, I guess it, it depends on what you're asking advice for. Do you mean from a fundraising perspective? Uh, I assume probably a fundraising perspective. Uh, you know, realistically, from Frontline's perspective, that traction or that momentum wouldn't look that appealing. Now, that said, sometimes people can be slow to start. So I've seen companies in our portfolio take two years before they really had any sort of meaningful revenue, but then they found that product market fit, they found the right customers to target, and then actually suddenly they grew faster. So I guess the question, because I'm going on little information here, is, you know, are, are you asking that question because you think that that's kind of the growth you'll always have, or is it that you don't have product market fit yet? And if it's, if it's, you don't, if it's the first one about that growth, well, then maybe venture capital isn't the right funding for you. If, uh, if it's the latter where maybe you don't have product market fit, well, maybe once you figure that out, it actually could be very appealing from a fundraising perspective. But again, going on little, little information there, um, David. Uh, Who's the first company you invested in and where are they now? Uh, the first company I invested in is a company called Raising IT. Uh, they're a software for charities and, um, and basically they now have, uh, they now have a little over 5 million in ARR. They power the websites and funding collection for about, I think a little over 400 charities, uh, in, in the UK. Um, and they're a company that, uh, has, has kind of, they had a, a really, I'd say tough, tough two years where they almost went out of business. Um, and then they, they managed to, like I said, they had actually very slow growth. And then they managed to turn that around um, and now actually are in a, a pretty good place. They've been growing over over 100% the last two or three years now, so which is great. Um, always good. To, uh, unfortunately, not all companies can turn it around, but that one has. Um, 
would you invest in a failed entrepreneur? Uh, I guess I have been a failed entrepreneur, uh, so uh, I don't think I would hold it against people. I think really what the important thing is, if anyone fails, there's nothing wrong with failing. Uh, but the important thing is that you learn from it, right? And, uh, and you know, I think if anyone, if anyone comes in and pitches me a company and I find out their previous business failed, I'll just ask them, you know, why do they think it failed? What are they learning from that? How has that influenced what they're now doing? And, you know, and, so yeah, I would have nothing wrong, no, nothing wrong with that. Uh, this is good, by the way. There's loads of questions coming in here. If there's any questions on the floor, just uh, throw up your hand. Um, will VCs get more or less attractive to? Oh, as a gone. Yeah, will VCs get more or less attractive to startups with rising interest rates? So I think maybe to most people, rising interest rates may not seem like. Uh, uh, like it might affect VCs because interest rates are really just not that connected in most people's minds. Where interest rates do affect VC funding into startups is in the LP world. So effectively, what's exciting about investing in a venture capital fund is high returns. And as interest rates go up, suddenly banks, pension funds, family offices have more attractive returns available to them. Now, again, it might not be as high as VC, but the risk return reward changes. Um, and so uh, if interest rates do go up, that could affect, uh, over the medium to long term, the amount of LP capital that wants to go into to venture capital. But I don't think rising interest rates will affect VCs directly on how they think about investing in startups, but it may affect the capital that's available to them. Um, it's a very VC question. Uh, what, what do you hate to hear in a pitch? Um, I... I don't know if there's anything I hate to hear. I've had some, I've had some pretty weird pitches, which, uh, what do I hate to hear? Maybe I'll just tell you about a pitch that I think was not a good pitch. Um, that was a really weird pitch, and maybe that's something I would hate someone to do again. Um, so uh, early on in Frontline, um, I used to have an apartment in London, and oh, I still have an apartment in London, but at the time, I had two spare bedrooms in the apartment, and I used to Airbnb them out. And um, I didn't put on my Airbnb anything about me being an investor or anything like that. I just put like, hi, I'm William, I'm in London, come stay at my house. And uh, somebody you know, booked the room for like uh, for four or five days, and, um, and this guy arrives, and you know, fine, I say hi, I show him around the apartment. I think it's strange, because he's booked it for like four, day, four or five days, and he's just got like a small rucksack on his back. And then he basically um, I go back into the sitting room and I'm just like typing away something on my laptop and he comes in and he's like, hey William, I know this is going to sound a bit weird, but I actually live in London and like I'm immediately thinking like, is this guy going to murder me? Um, and, uh, and then he, he says, you know, I, 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 I was looking for a room for my friend who was visiting London and then I saw your name and I recognized that you were a VC and I thought, why don't I just spend the next like four or five days living with you and telling you all about my company? Um, and to be clear, just in case anyone's wondering, I won't tell you the name of his company, but his company was a men's underwear brand, which I know it shouldn't, but it kind of does make it feel a little bit weirder. Um, and so anyway, I uh, told him that that's not, not the way I would like to be pitched to and gave him a refund and, uh, and met him for a coffee and it was not an investment for us. But that was something that I generally would recommend against. Uh, so I, I hate people who try to invade my house to pitch to me. It's maybe the better way of doing it. Um, I'm, an early, I'm an early stage company founder. This is my baby. You are a portfolio investor. How do we get aligned on risk? Well, I think the main thing is that taking money from a venture capital fund, you need to understand effectively the maths of a venture capital fund. So let's just take Frontline's first fund. We're a 50 million euro fund. Our investors, if we want to be really successful, need to see hopefully three times that fund. So that means we need to return 150 million. 
What comes with that is that we're going to invest in about 30 companies. Of those 30 companies, we will probably have five to six ones that we think are big hits, hopefully, which we may own 10 to 20% of. And what that effectively means is that we need to have five or six companies that are selling for a minimum of 150 million to 300 million to be able to make the returns of 150 million to our investors. So the reason why I give that backdrop is that if you're building a company, what you need to understand is that is the venture capital motivations. We want to build big companies. And so it's really important when we're meeting founders and we're talking to founders that the alignment is effectively that you need to understand that's what we're trying to build. And if you don't want to build that, then maybe venture capital funding isn't for you. And there, there are lots of different types of funding available. And there are different types of venture capitalists who have different levels of ambition and what they're trying to get. Um, but really, the best way to be aligned from just a conceptual level is if you want to build a big company. Over time, there are lots of different things that can be aligned. But what I'd say is that as a seed investor, you know, we're usually the most aligned to the entrepreneur. Um, it starts to get a lot less aligned when kind of lots of liquidation preferences come in later or other things like that. It's generally not something that you, you, you see as much. There's a lot less misalignment at the seed stage. Um, I think at least maybe people would disagree. People are also allowed to just stand up and disagree with me if they want to. Um, maybe I'll just jump to, is there anyone in the audience who'd like to ask a question? There seems to be plenty coming up here. I can just keep, keep going. Keep going. Okay, fine. Um, what are the best tips for getting a meeting with a VC at Don't Go To Their House? Um, uh, I, I would say in general, front, so Frontline, we track everything uh, about all the deal flow that we get. And so of the deals that, of the deals that Frontline sees, you know, we see about one and a half thousand a year. Of that, about, um, about 40% of those, 40-50% of those are cold call. So that's people coming at us on LinkedIn, Twitter, finding us where we live, or sending us a cold email. Um, of those, only one has ever converted to an investment we've made. Um, and that's, you know, you think about that over six years, that's one and a half thousand companies times six, 40, and then it's 40% of that, uh, 40, 50% of that, and one of those has converted to a deal. Um, whereas if you look at the portfolio we have, most of those have come through uh, personal network or, or other investors or, or angels. Um, and so what I always advise people is, you know, realistically, because we see one and a half thousand companies a year, and most of that comes in cold, you only have so much time to review everything that you sent. And if someone who I respect enormously, or I think very highly of, sends me a deal and says, William, this company's really amazing, I rate it really highly, just by the nature of, uh, of, of our industry, um, I will spend more time on that. Um, because you're constantly trying to qualify on how you spend your time, because I could literally spend all my day answering startup emails and looking at startup pitches, and yet most of my day is not even doing that. It's taking meetings and managing portfolio companies and fundraising every once in a while as well. So um, so I think the, my tip is the best way to get a meeting with a VC is try and find mutual connections. That's not always possible, but there are lots of other ways you can do that. LinkedIn obviously is amazing. Twitter, like if you're tweeting, I mean, I'll, I'll answer pretty much everything, but it's just a question of finding smart ways rather than just hitting people with noise. Um, and also making sure that the VCs you target are, are actually VCs who are, are invest in what you do. It, it's an incredibly large proportion of the investments that we see every year are out of our remit. So I think it's like 20, 25% are too late stage. They're like, we're, we're B2B focused investor and they're sending us B2C stuff. Um, so I think, you know, make sure you're reaching out to the right people because they're obviously more likely than to, to reply. Um, how, do, how much do VC valuation bidding wars skew the market? Um, you know, it's often rare that a startup has one term sheet. It's usually once they've got one, they get multiple. And I, 
I don't think it skews it that much, realistically. Um, yeah, I mean, people, the, the, the VC world by definition, the startup world by definition, is kind of a, a world of outliers. So you'll always hear about some company getting a big round or this or that. In reality, you know, if you look at the average, most of our deals are pretty close to where the average. There's been a slight increase over the last few years, but that's more of a market trend necessarily driven by VC bidding wars, at least at the seed stage where we focus. Maybe the Series A or Series B is, is different, but, you know, like realistically, um, VCs are, in Europe at least, I don't think there's enough seed funds for it to be a very competitive environment. Most of the VCs that I would feel are competitive with us, usually we can also work with. And so it, it's often rarely the case that we are in bidding wars, which is unfortunate for entrepreneurs, um, but it is the reality. Uh, and I think that happens a lot more in the US because there's just simply more. Um, okay. Uh, uh, how do you build momentum and push the VC to close the deal? I think a lot of it's about... Yeah, well, so we'll take a second step back. We obviously talk, talk to a lot of our portfolio founders and help them try and fundraise. Like in reality, what you want to do is not just rush out and take any meeting with anybody. You need to really plan it and think about who you're targeting and and why and when, and then line it up. So first of all, just get your stuff ready. You know, like plan in time, have your material ready, so that as soon as you do have the VCs, you can start to move. What you don't want is like to have a great meeting with an investor and then effectively spend another week and a half, two weeks getting your material ready, then another week sending them more uh, material and then more questions. You want to have everything ready to go. Secondly, for a lot of investors, what they want to see is start having momentum. So if you're coming to a seed fund, you know, already understanding, you know, having maybe one or two angel investors that are keen on it, knowing who your advisors are, knowing who your team are, really having practice the pitch helps a lot. At the later stages, when you're going to series A, series B, I think, you know, there's no reason, there's no point to go out to investors until you also understand where your current investor's positioning is. Um, so you should make sure that if you're going to go out to pitch, that you know how much your seed investors want to take in the next round, because that will help decide how you strategically play the investors. And then also lining it up. You know, I, I don't think you should be spending all of your time meeting VCs, but you should be meeting them before you plan to go out fundraising. Uh, just have a catch up and say, hey, we're planning this soon to get them warmed up. And then basically once you have, uh, once you have everything ready and you understand what your current funding, uh, uh, your current investors want to do, then suddenly kind of hit, hit, hit the accelerator and organize a, a number of different meetings really quickly with VCs, build momentum, and, and, I, and I, at least we find that's a far better way than kind of dragging it out over time, which unfortunately a lot of entrepreneurs do. Um, what is the typical investment period? Or, well, sorry, I skipped one, did I? Sorry. Uh, what do you look for in a founder? Uh, I don't know. This is probably like a pretty generic question. I feel like lots of VCs will talk about that. I'll just maybe say one quality, which I don't hear people say about. Um, so uh, self-awareness is, I think, one of the most important things to have if you want to be a great entrepreneur, particularly because at the seed stage, you kind of have to do everything. So you can actually get you can actually achieve quite a lot at the seed stage if, um, uh, if you have really poor self-awareness. But in actual fact, once you start to grow and your company starts to grow, by the time you get to kind of Series A or a little bit later, you start to see cracks everywhere because you haven't hired well, because you don't know. I mean, someone who has good self-awareness, they know what they're good at, but more importantly, they know what they're bad at. And what you see is people who have poor self-awareness tend to delegate less and hire poorly. Um, and so what I'd say is one of the things we really look for in our founders is having a really strong self-awareness. Um, and that's something maybe I... I don't hear VCs talk about when they when, as much in founders, but obviously all the other stuff. You want ambition. You want people who are really smart. You want people who are you know whatever. But uh, but I think self uh, self awareness is maybe people something people don't talk about. Um, it can be tough to get the attention of a VC. How can a startup catch your interest? Maybe that person didn't 
here earlier, there, there's, there's different levels of catching my attention. Uh, don't come to my house to catch my attention. Um, but, uh, but, but I think, you know, you can just go through, uh, go, through your net, go through your network or my network. If a smart person who I think and I rate highly sends me a deal, I'm much more likely to spend time on that, meet that person, than if someone just randomly cold calls the info at, uh, at the front line because you know, we get so many companies coming in there. Um, what is the typical investment period you aim at? Um, so our fund is a, a, a 10-year investment period. So effectively, when we're investing in companies, we're looking for companies that hopefully will have an exit within that time period. We invest over the first four years. So that means that at the beginning, we can invest in companies that maybe are a bit earlier and we think might take longer. But coming towards the end of a fund, we'll start to do companies that are more at the later end of seed um, because realistically, that means that we are looking for exits within six years from there. Um, Again, these things are incredibly hard to figure out. A lot of it is finger in the air, but you just got to make your best guesses uh, and, and manage it as, as most VCs would in their kind of portfolio strategy. Um, okay, how often, how am I doing on time? Okay, that's good. Uh, uh, what is the typical, sorry, how important is taking smart money over dumb money? Uh, there is no self-named dumb money in the world. Uh, nobody ever thinks that they're dumb money. And in reality, there's enormous variation in what is smart and what is uh, dumb money. There's like a lot, basically there's the majority of investors are somewhere in the middle. Um, there's not kind of, it's not binary. And, uh, and what I'd say is that realistically, you know, if you find smart investors who can add value to your company, that is obviously amazing. That can be very different for different companies. A smart investor in one fund could be a dumb investor in another. So I think it really is about you understanding how you want to build your company, what are the key challenges you have, how can those investors uh, help with that, and then obviously do your due diligence. Like I am blown away by how many companies that Frontline gives a term sheet to that don't ask to speak to our portfolio companies. It's usually us that suggest that. Um, and so uh, you make sure you do your due diligence. And don't just do the due diligence on the companies that we recommend you to talk to. You know, kind of do background due diligence. Talk to other investors that we've worked with. You know, the, the VC scene and the startup scene is actually a really tight-knit, close space. So you can find those introductions if you need them. You know, if you get a term sheet from a VC, you, you can do due diligence, and it shouldn't take too long. Um, so my view is always make sure you do due diligence. Um, okay, uh, I don't know if there's any... I can keep doing this. Uh, any questions on the floor? Okay, I think we've got one minute left, so maybe one or two quick fire ones. Um, how often do you turn down, how do often do startups turn down your offer? Uh, since we started Frontline, we have lost seven deals that we wanted to do. Um, and then there was another one where, I don't know, if we didn't lose it to another investor, but we, uh, the company decided that they didn't actually want to fundraise at all. Um, so I guess that's eight in total uh, out of, I guess, a, a lot. Um, Overall, we do a lot of due diligence, and we, uh, and I think usually by the time that we give our term sheets, we and the entrepreneurs are pretty aligned on whether or not we want to work together. Um, so, you know, some people give term sheets much faster and then do a lot of the due diligence afterwards, and so there might be a bigger disparity on that. Uh, but at least for us, that, that's roughly the, the number, or not, that is the number so far. Uh, what, what mix of skills and experience do you, oh, sorry, do you look for in a founding team, and are there any red flags? Um, I don't know. Uh, it can completely depend on what the company's doing. We invest right at the early stage. 50% of our investments are pre-product. So realistically, um, uh, you know, so much of it is still underdeveloped. Um, and we never expect a company to have the perfect skill sets all there. I understand at later stages, they want to see more complementary skill sets. They want to see some of the leadership team in place that can scale. Realistically, at the pre-product stage, there's only so much you can expect a company to have. Um, 
Uh, best sources of funding to start a new fund. Uh, okay, uh, well, I think this is just my last thing. So, um, effectively, uh, it's really difficult to raise a fund in Europe, I, I think, and maybe I'm wrong on that. You know, average time to raise a fund in Europe, I think, is over two years. Like, that's a really long time. If you think about, like, it's slow to get money from a VC, it's really slow to get money from, from, from LPs investing funds. Um, there's a pretty big difference between Europe and the U.S. In the U.S., one of the biggest investors in venture capital funds is in university endowments. They don't exist in Europe, really, to any large extent. Uh, pension funds are one of the next big investors in funds. They do exist in Europe, but the problem is, is that effectively a pension fund uh, usually doesn't want to give you a check of less than 20, 25 million, and they don't want to be more than 20% of your fund. So unless you're raising an over 100 million fund, most pension funds don't want to invest in you. Um, and then also, in general, most pension funds don't want to invest in a first-time fund. Um, Okay, so then you've got family offices. In the US, if you meet a family office, most family offices are two degrees away from where the money is made. And sorry if I'm going way over time here. Uh, basically, so what that means is, if I meet you in your family office, either you made the money, your parents made the money, or your grandparents made the money. And so you at least grew up understanding what it was to create capital, build, build companies. In Europe, most family offices that you meet are like seven to 10 degrees away from where the money is made. And that's completely fine, but it, what it means is that most European family offices have a capital preservation strategy versus a capital creation strategy. So the summary of what I'm saying there is, best sources of funding to start a new fund in Europe. Largely, governments are one of the best sources. They're usually one of the first places that invest in first-time funds. Family offices, if you can find them, there's less so. Um, uh, we, you know, we have two pension funds, a bank, uh, three family offices. We have some money from the Irish government. We have some money from the European Investment Fund as well. Um, there isn't a best source. It's just, you know, there are sources that you've got to try. Sorry, that was a very long, quick answer to that. Uh, I don't know if it was a good answer. Um, I think I'm way over time now. I can do one more? Okay, cool. Uh, well, there is one more question. Is there a minimum percentage equity VCs will look for? This can depend on the VC. I don't know if anyone heard Connor speaking before this. You know, he mentioned that corporate VCs often don't want to lead the round. And, um, and in reality, uh, they'll look for like a smaller equity percentage when they're doing that. Uh, for most VCs that lead around, they'll usually look for a minimum of 10%, but it can also depend on the VC style. You know, there are some funds in London that on paper look very similar to Frontline, but actually the way they structure their fund between primary investing, which is the first money you give to a company, and secondary investing actually means that they have very little in secondary. And so they try and get as big a stake as they can when they first invest. And then they don't usually invest anymore. In Frontline's case, we usually keep 70% of our fund to follow. And so what that means is that we can invest and get you know, 10, 12% instead of 25%, um, but then gain stake at the A or the, the, the B round as well, because we have money to follow. So it really, the answer to that is it can vary a lot, but you should talk to the funds and ask them about the deals when you're talking to them so you can understand that when trying to assemble your funding round. I think I'm done, and that actually kind of worked okay, uh, which is great. Thank you, everyone who was asking questions. That was great. Uh I hope you've enjoyed this special episode of the SaaS Revolution Show, and you've picked up valuable lessons from Willem. As a reminder, you can meet 400 investors at SaaS Talk 19 in Dublin and find the next dose of rocket fuel. Join us October 14th to the 16th. Grab a ticket now at the best possible price. Link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.